Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you today. It is, uh, it is always good to be in the house of God and um, with our community. And if I get this thing straight, which should work. Um, yeah, so um, as a little introduction, uh, when, when the trustees decided that what uh, Emmaus needed these days is to hear the word of God as it is experienced by its members. I really rejoiced in the opportunity. This wasn't about uh, giving someone else's a break. It wasn't about showing off my great knowledge or ability. And it wasn't about saying all the right things. It was simply a recognition of God's word alive, well, and active in our lives and in our faith community. So I checked with excitement what today's readings were. When I saw that the Old Testament reading was from Ecclesiastes, I swiftly moved on, confident that the Psalms or New Testament would offer me a more relevant basis for our message. Well, I didn't feel they did, not at least for me. So I simply had to surrender my own ideas for the sermon, believing that God has something relevant to tell us from Ecclesiastes today, and reluctantly open up the book. Why so much reluctance? Why is Ecclesiastes not my super fave book of the Bible? After all, it was one of the first Bible books I ever read way back in Africa in the 1980s as an atheist with newfound doubts, reluctantly exploring the faith that I had shunned for years. At that time, Ecclesiastes literally eased me into a faith stance, opened the door for gingerly letting in the strange God whom I had fiercely denied for so long. But beyond my self-reference, why is the book of Ecclesiastes a tough and uncommon book for sermons in our churches? Oddly enough, we love to quote isolated verses from it, like, uh, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heavens, or a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, or even better, he has made everything beautiful in his time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet we struggle to figure out how all that wisdom in the book fits together. And what's the point of it all? It just doesn't make sense, at least to me. Well, I'm certainly not claiming to offer today the key to Ecclesiastes. But let's try together as the Emmaus community to see what God is telling us through this book today. I say the book, not just today's passage, because while our passage is limited to 18 verses, you will see that they're quite representative of the book as a whole, or at least its first half. Which brings us to our first task, understanding the context of the text seeking to figure out what the book meant to the author's hearers then. For as the theologians keep telling us, that original meaning will lead us to the meaning for us today as well. Well, Ecclesiastes is Greek for one who calls an assembly. The translation of the rather unclear Hebrew word Kohelet, probably something related to an assembly. We're also not explicitly told who this caller of the assembly or 
teacher or preacher um, is, but it sure sounds, it definitely sounds like King Solomon. He fits the bill perfectly in all that he had done in his life, all that he owned, and above all, above everything for his telltale wisdom. And by this time, when he wrote the book, King Solomon was no longer the spring chicken and raving lover of the Song of Songs. He's clearly nearing the end of his life and wanting to leave us his parting shots, his final thoughts on life. I'll therefore assume today that the author was King Solomon and simply avoid all the controversies surrounding authorship. The book itself is an eclectic mix of personal pensées and aphorisms, mostly in the first half, followed by a large dose of more general wisdom thoughts, quite similar in many respects to those we find in the neighboring book of Proverbs. Much of the book's content can be understood and explained by recognizing that Ecclesiastes belongs to a particular stream in Middle Eastern wisdom literature, the so-called pessimism literature. Now, unfortunately, much of this literature was downright depressive stuff that was coming from a secular perspective. But you'll see that Solomon's book is more like a pessimism with a twist. Moreover, Solomon seems to address, to address both the committed religious people of his day and the less spiritual ones. Remember, he was speaking to God's very people, organized in a theocracy, so atheists must have been rare there. To the first group, he seems to say, don't take yourself too seriously. While the second, he warns, remember, at the end, it is quite serious after all. In the words of uh, J.S. Wright in a commentary on this book, God holds the key to all unknown, but he will not give it to you. Since you do not have the key, you must trust him to open the doors. So let's just follow the narrative as it happens in today's passage and let it speak for itself. The structure of the passage is very simple. Much of the work is already done by earlier editors who added the two section titles. Wisdom is meaningless for the second half of chapter one and pleasures are meaningless in the first half of chapter two. Right off the bat, the teacher starts by introducing himself as Israel's king and describing his personal quest for both knowledge and wisdom. At the end, all vanity, all meaningless, the so-called chasing after the wind. Now try to follow me a bit into Solomon's times. We're not talking about here about some 30-year-old TikTok influencer who just went viral for saying that he sees no point in going to college as you don't really learn anything there. No, sir. We're talking about a personal universally recognized almost as synonymous with wisdom. The one to whom God himself in 2 Chronicles 1 said, because this was in your heart and you have not asked riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. It is this literal genius 
who devotes his life to intense pursuits in learning knowledge and seeking wisdom, who then even applies himself to understanding what wisdom actually is, it is this person that finds at the end of his life that all this is zero, zilch, nada. Now remember also how praised and honored wisdom in the very setting when and where Solomon lived. Recall the first two chapters of Proverbs personifying wisdom, exhorting everyone to pursue it, a veritable, a veritable ode to wisdom. So what gives? No wonder commentators get confused. One can say, well, maybe in his young age, Solomon thought wisdom was very important, and then he changed his mind. But what about us? Are knowledge and wisdom in or out? Should we seek them or not? Let's wait for the answer until we briefly looked at the second part of our passage. Maybe this will bring clarity or just get us in an even bigger pickle. If in the first section, Solomon examines critically his mind and thoughts, in the second, he looks equally critically at his actions. He starts with pleasure and folly. Now I can already see all the bearded faces of the religious elite of his time nodding gravely. Of course, that's all vanity. And Solomon of all people should have known better. But then the moralists may get somewhat uncomfortable as the teacher swiftly continues by including all other mundane actions of life, building homes, planting gardens, owning property, and generally enjoying life, calling it equally meaningless, all of it. What then is left of life? One thing, of course, God. And without a doubt, this is the key to Solomon's view and the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole. Solomon was speaking to people that knew that it was God. He didn't have to make it so obvious. So when we read it with our 21st century post-Christian lens, it's like, whoa, how come he doesn't mention the word God? in the whole place. How come in the entire book, he just mentioned this just a few times, because God was fully, fully implicit, of course, in this worldview, in his worldview, and I hope in our current worldview it will be. Now, this leads us to the most common interpretation of the book. All is vanity and meaningless except for God. There are two directions one can follow in life, and there's only one correct answer to the question. But there's a problem with this. The fact that much of Ecclesiastes on, in, the, in the other chapters carefully prevents us from getting off with this simplistic binary explanation. Why else do we encounter in the coming chapters such seeming contradictions as Chapter 224, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. 322, there's nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. And the favorite one to many, 9 uh, verse 7, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. 
I would like to suggest that Solomon is offering us in Ecclesiastes an alternative explanation to the saint versus sinner binary choice. In fact, he states in, in 9 verse 2, all share common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the God and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not, as it is with a good man, so it is with a sinner. Whoa. Of course, we must be careful when we build our theology and life on such passages. And we do know that Solomon's view of afterlife was quite limited. Nonetheless, the alternative that he offers us is that God does not inhabit only the holy places, the so-called holy places, and doesn't only side with the religious elite. God dwells in the mundane moments of life in work and food and love and laughter. And of course, in wisdom and knowledge too. The point is, however, that all these things are meaningless and vain in God's absence, yet all gain their meaning and purpose when done in Him. It is not what, it is not what we do, uh, what, Sorry. It is not what we do that makes our actions spiritual and therefore meaningful. It is why we do what we do, for whom and in whose presence. God's presence is the truly divine ingredient, the secret sauce, so to speak, which transforms and sanctifies each action, each thought, each desire. In fact, in him, the moment becomes sacred, unique, pregnant with meaning, the very sacrament of the present moment that centuries ago the Jesuit Jean-Pierre de Cossade spoke about. In a society which remarkably, which remarkably similarly to ours was packed with divisions and polarizations, Solomon offers us in his divinely gifted wisdom a path of unity, of wholeness, of true shalom. By seeing each little aspect of life as a gift from God, he encourages us towards a generous spirituality which values each moment, each human en en endeavor, each feeling. Yes, life is short and full of suffering. Ecclesiastes is, after all, pessimism literature. And verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 18 refers to the toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given. Yet as he immediately following verse says, all of this is a gift of God and is therefore to be fully enjoyed. I had mentioned earlier that Ecclesiastes was one of the first books of the Bible I had read late in my 20s. At a time, I was a militant atheist, a committed existentialist, and a hopeless hedonist angry against a Christian church, which I perceived as false and hypocritical. While in a completely different league than Solomon, I too had tried knowledge and pleasure and possessions, only to be left with an existential sense of restlessness, loneliness, boredom, and doubt. Discovering God or rather being discovered by Jesus Christ against my own wishes, radically changed my life. 
I embarked on a rocky but steady road of pursuing holiness, purity, and devotion, and threw away much of what reminded me of my past. In Paul's words, which uh, became my motto, I considered everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. There's a word where it says garbage. I considered it junk, garbage. So, that's Philippians 3.8. So, the only music I wanted to listen to was so-called Christian music. I read only Christian books and nurtured mostly or only friendships with Christians. All was good. It's just that I would get those moments when I clearly encountered God in rather non-traditional Christian places, like at a crazy jazz concert, or while watching dancing Sufis in Turkey, or simply talking to street beggars. I also came to powerfully sense God's presence in my professional work, not just the missionary work I did in Africa, but increasingly in the so-called secular research, innovating surgical care and exploring artificial intelligence. And, like Eric Little in the classic movie Chariots of Fire, I discovered that when I studied science and I wrote grants and supervised students, I sensed God's pleasure. Early in my faith journey, I questioned and agonized over whether such pleasures and ambitions were really from God. But through some good new mentors and the Ignatian exercises, I learned that it is God who plans the desires of our heart firmly within us. All this has led for me to a spiritual journey that has introduced me to a spacious and generous experience of God's presence. A space where God is found not just in churches and Christian books and Bible studies, but in fact inhabits each moment, each action, each thought. On my part, all that, was that he required for the journey was my willingness and awareness to recognize him everywhere, combined with an attitude of humility and gratitude that recognizes that all of life is a precious gift. This for now is my journey. What is yours? And quite relevant to these days, what is our journey together at Emmaus? Our joyful communal journey has suddenly come to, up to a rough stretch, with our caravan leader unexpectedly gone. So many questions unanswered. Why and what now and how? I'm wondering what wise King Solomon's words would have been for us at this point. I'm no prophet and sure can't speak for God. But could it be that at this very conjecture, God might be less interested in us passing various tests of doctrinal purity and more interested in his children humbly following him? living our lives vocationally wherever we have been called to do so, and communally pulling together in unity to remain a haven of spiritual rest, justice, and shalom in this great city. Oh, and something else he might well say, no, little flock, 
your true caravan leader is not gone anywhere. He, Jesus, is still very much in our midst this very moment. Without him, all of our worthwhile efforts to keep the church going, to care for the flock, to be in the place of healing and rest are, you guessed it, just a chasing after the wind. But with our Lord, everything will be well. Ça va bien aller. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for your word, your perfect word. Any explanation of it is a metaphor. Every, every understanding of it is imperfect. And oh Lord, <laughs> I'm so acutely aware that so is mine. But Lord, I pray that what may come out, that which you will feed your people, that which they will receive, Today will be the precious beauty of your word, which is simply a reflection of the amazing, precious beauty of you. I pray, Lord, that this indeed may lead each one of us to boldly, courageously, committedly continue on our faith journeys wherever we may be with only one goal in mind, that of coming into your presence, of nearing to you, and ultimately of living and having our being in you. We thank you in advance for that which you will do today. In Jesus' name, amen.